Guys, I need to just confess, uh, get this out of the way before we go any further. Uh, The subject of my sermon this morning. Um, Well, let me just say this first. We've been working through a series. It's kind of our summer series, if you will, called The Cross and about a dozen other things. Um, Practical aspects, categories of everyday life. And we've been looking at how uh, the cross does, potentially can, impact the, the various aspects of our everyday lives. Um, we've actually entitled the series Torn Veil, because when Jesus was just about to breathe his last upon his death, it said that the, the curtain that was, or the veil in the temple, this barrier, if you will, that separated people from the Holy of Holies, the place in the temple where it was said the very presence of God would manifest um, at different very special times during the year. And that veil upon the death of Jesus on the cross was torn in two, literally. Um, Spiritually, the implications are profound, eternal, and practical. So we've been looking at, like, what, what does that mean? What did that mean? And what might that mean for us nearly 2,000 years later. The divide that separated us from our Creator, our Heavenly Father, has been done away with, and now we can experience new life in Jesus Christ. So the cross, what Jesus did, is very, very practical, applicable to our lives, our everyday lives today. So we've talked about everything from family, stress, marriage, work, money, uh, romance, last week was politics, and then this week, we've, we've, uh, we've left this subject this morning veiled. Um, we, had a, we have a leadership team. We gather every Tuesday evening. It's, it's our, our staff, as it were, although we're all pretty much volunteers. Um, we took a vote. We discussed what would really help the church for where we're at right now, uh, we're a very young church. If you didn't know, we're, we're, I think we're still technically in the church plant phase. We're less than a year old, so we're in diapers. Um, hopefully, quickly outgrowing them. If you're a parent, you know how desperately you want your kids to outgrow that phase of life. It's a beautiful thing. So we discussed it. We prayed about it. We debated a little bit. What's going to really help our church? And, and we eventually came to a consensus, and we felt that leadership, leadership would be a very practical uh, thing for us to think about, particularly leadership in light of the cross. Thus, the cross and leadership. And back to my confession. Um, so I woke up this morning. Actually, I woke up on Monday morning thinking about the cross and leadership, and I felt this overwhelming sense of um, incompetency. I think that's the word. Um, being underqualified. And this isn't just like pastor trying to be humble. Okay, this is, this is for real. Uh, I've read, I don't know, maybe 20 books on leadership over the years. Uh, I don't think I'm a terrible leader, I hope. But it's not my, it's not my area of expertise, it's not something that I, I dream about writing books about. It's not something that I give people advice on. But it is something, and I, I believe this with all my heart, that's very, very important. Leadership is 
it's a part of every aspect of life. Family, government, business, education, uh, leadership. Everyone's influencing someone. And so it's important to figure out what does leadership look like in the kingdom of God? What does leadership look like in light of the cross? Jesus, of course, was a great leader. I would contend that he was the greatest leader in terms of his lasting impact, his influence um, in the world. His influence is not slowing down, it's not wearing out. Uh, The teaching, the life, the ministry, the impact of Jesus is not even beginning to wane. So he's the leader that we want to look to. Um, So I prayed as I got up this morning, God help me. Um, You're going to need to lead me very, very well this morning because I don't want to just give out some practical leadership advice. That's that's not why we come to church. Um, It's really, really not. Although there's tons of practical leadership lessons we could pull out of the Bible. Um, I could point you to some great books written by Christian people that might help you in your leadership. But this morning we want to look specifically at leadership as it's informed by Jesus' work on the cross. What is it about that pinnacle moment in the life and the leadership of our King, Jesus, that informs how we view an attempt to do leadership in our various spheres of influence in our personal lives? That's the question. That's what we're doing this morning. So let me pray for us. Let me just pray for myself again. Lord Jesus, thank you for uh, leading us. Thank you for giving us your spirit who leads us. Your word says that the children of God are led by the spirit of God. So I pray that this morning as we look to your word, as we consider your great work on the cross, that by your spirit you would lead us, you would teach us, you would open our hearts and our minds to receive from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Guys, we're going to start in the book of John. And, uh, yeah, that's great. If you have a Bible, please open it. Um, and if you need one, we actually have Bibles available in the aisle. I don't know if you noticed, but there's some boxes in the aisleway here. You're very, very welcome to grab one of those Bibles at any point um, and use those. And even take it home if you don't have a Bible. You're very welcome to that. But we're going to start in John. This is really just going to, we're not going to do, I'm not going to do a big expository teaching through this passage, but I just, I like it because it's going to set us up to talk about leadership um, in light of the cross. Um, I'm going to go there with you guys. John chapter 11, verses 5 through 16. Now, we're, we're jumping right into some context, so bear with me. I, I think it'll make sense as we, as we read into this a little bit. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, their brother. So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Weird. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? They just came from Judea. 
barely escaped with their lives. Verse nine, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, talking about daylight, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant he was taking rest in sleep. And Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, he's one of the 12 disciples called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us go also that we may die with him. Don't know if he's talking about Jesus, who's likely going to get himself killed if he goes back, or if he's talking about Lazarus, who's apparently already dead anyways. Either way, Thomas is the cynic. He's the one, you know, whatever, let's, let's, I guess we'll just go and die, because that's basically what's going to happen. Here's what I love about this passage. Thomas is doing two things, clearly not on purpose. One, he's speaking prophetically. Prophetically means that he's actually, without knowing it, saying something that is very true and is from God. He's, he's prophesying, prophesying as it were, something that's about to take place because in fact Jesus is going to die. And Jesus is not unaware of this. The second thing he's doing is he's being a decent leader. He's actually influencing uh, the, the other 11. He's saying, let's go. Let's, let's follow our teacher. Come what may, who's with me? And if we read on, they all go along. They go back to Judea. Uh, Jesus prays for Lazarus. In fact, Lazarus has been dead for a little while, buried in a tomb, cave, and Jesus commands Lazarus to come out. And he comes back from the dead. Uh, causes quite a, quite a stir among some of Jesus' harshest critics. So much, though, that they they seek to kill Lazarus and ultimately even Jesus himself. So Thomas inadvertently prophesies the death of Jesus and influences his uh, mates to go along with them. And where do we end up? At the cross. The ultimate destination. The place where Jesus is ultimately leading his followers to the cross. So what can we say about leadership and the cross? Um, I want to say seven things. Call them the seven signs of a cross-led leader. Or uh, if you prefer, cruciformed leadership. Fancy theological word. Cruciform leadership. What does it look like to lead in light of the cross? Number one, a leader who leads in light of the cross is a leader who follows. First and foremost, most important. It's a leader who follows. Jesus. He says in, again, John, skipping forward to chapter 21, 
verses 18 and 19, he's speaking to Peter, kind of the leader among the disciples. This is after his death, after his resurrection. He's now appeared to a few of his disciples, and he says to Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This, Jesus said, to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. And it's interesting, if you read on at the very end of the book of John, the gospel according to John, uh, it says that Peter turns and he looks to the beloved one, John himself, one of uh, Jesus' other disciples. And Peter says, what about this guy? And essentially, Jesus says, what about this guy? You follow me. You follow me. No, don't look around. Don't worry about, I've got a plan for this guy, and I've got a plan for the person sitting next to you. But if you want to be a part of my kingdom, if you want to influence people the way I'm calling you to, if you want to be the leader that I've created you to be, you, you follow me wherever I might lead you. Jesus said in John chapter 5, I only do what I see the Father doing, and I only say what I hear the Father saying. Before Jesus was crucified, we read of the, um, quite an epic account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He, he knows that his death is imminent. He knows that he's about to be betrayed and he's going to be turned over to the Roman officials. He's going to be tortured. He's going to be put to incredible shame and ultimately hung on a cross to die of asphyxiation. And he's torn. It says that he's literally sweating blood. Apparently this is an actual physiological phenomenon. The stress is overwhelming. He says in John chapter 12, now I am troubled. My soul is troubled, but what shall I do? Say, Father, deliver me from this hour? No, for this very reason I came into the world again and again and again. The closer Jesus gets to the cross, he's praying prayers like, God, not my will, but your will be done. Don't deliver me from this. I'm not trying to get away from this. I'm more determined than ever to follow you, to follow my Father all the way to the cross. Because this is completely contrary, counter, backwards to what I think we normally think of in terms of what real leadership looks like. It's, it's normally put like this. You either lead or follow. But you don't follow to lead. And as always, in Jesus' sort of upside-down economy, the economy of his kingdom, Jesus says, no, you want to lead? Then learn how to follow. Learn how to be led by God. Learn how to listen to your heavenly Father. Learn how to live the way I've lived. And that is in submission to God. Now, let me throw in a little twist. Um, every once in a while, there's, you know, in, in, when I'm preaching, there's an opportunity to throw in a verse that you might never have heard read out loud on a Sunday morning before. Can I do that now? 
It's highly controversial. Let's go to Hebrews. Chapter 13, verse 17. It says, obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this, let your leaders do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How about that? Obey your leaders and submit to them. Do we not have leadership issues as like an entire generation? I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not a, a sociologist. I, I, can't, I can't give authoritative opinion on Western society. But I think we have leadership issues. I really think we do. And for good reason, I would add. Um, I, could, I could tell you quite a few stories about leaders who have failed me in my short little life. Um, Leaders who have lied to me. Leaders who have used me. Leaders who are in it for selfish gain. Not because they, they just wanted to love people and serve people and see the family of God like become what it's meant to be. A place where were, were the marginalized, the, uh, the worthless, according to society, can come and, and be a part, can be called valuable, can be welcomed, can belong. Okay, this is the family. And if, if you aspire to be a leader, the scriptures say that's, that's good, it's honorable, that's worthy, that's, it's hard work, and you're gonna be held to, to, you're gonna be held accountable for that by God heavy thought, but we need good leaders. So what do you do? What do you do when God says, right, I want you to follow me, but I'm going to use a human being in the process. That takes faith. Ultimately, that takes supreme trust, not in a person per se, although we, we all need to learn how to trust each other at some level. But to trust the leadership of another ultimately comes back to trust in God himself. Trust that Jesus is the head of his church, that Jesus is the one who appoints and, and removes people from leadership, which I've seen happen time and time again. It's a trust that that our father is a good father. He's a capable father. And his promise to never leave us or abandon us or be too busy for us is, is real and true. And so we follow. We follow God. We follow God in others. And we pray along the way. A leader who leads in light of the cross is also a leader who follows through. A leader is always faithful. You know, there's a, there's a bit of a, anyone read like theological blogs in here? Anyone just, 
David, me and you. Read anything good this morning? Okay. Did you read anything on sort of the, the debate around the Pistis Christu controversy? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, so even, even the guy who reads theology blogs doesn't know what I'm talking about. That's, it's not a bad thing. Um, the phrase that we see come up close to 50 times in the New Testament, faith in Jesus, faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, but by faith in Jesus Christ. In the Greek, in New Testament Greek, that phrase is pistis Christu, which when translated into English could read faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. Works either way. Now obviously, I think we do well to trust Greek scholars and and, and our modern Bible translators um, to have translated it, faith in Jesus Christ. But there is a bit of a debate going on out there. It is possible that you could read it, the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And I like that, not because I necessarily agree with that. That's called the subjective genitive translation of pistis Christu. It's just for you, David. I like it, not because I necessarily agree with it, but within that debate, it emphasizes the supreme faithfulness of God. He doesn't break his promises. He never goes back on his word. This is awesome. He's not fickle. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, I don't know how I'm feeling this morning. Let me fire off a text. Let the church know I'm not going to be able to make it this morning. Could you imagine if like before I got up here, my phone vibrates and I'm like, oh, snap. Jesus can't make it this morning. But Jesus, you promised every time we gather, you're going to be with us. And that's a promise that he is faithful to. He went all the way to the cross, not because he felt like it. To the contrary, he did not feel like it. And the Bible makes that very, very clear, vividly clear. He did not feel like going to the cross. But Jesus, he followed through all the way to death. That one is probably the hardest of the seven. Because it's so easy. It's like socially acceptable to break our promises today. It just is. Number three. A leader who leads in light of the cross is a leader who's looking beyond present circumstances. It's a leader who sees. Going back to Hebrews again, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. I've quoted this one several times throughout the series. It says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. So once there, how did he bear it? How did he endure it? What what empowered him? to follow through all the way into the point of death. He was seeing, he had a vision. He had, he had joy, there was something set before him. There was, he was seeing beyond the present, past the circumstances. Is there anything in your life right now where you're like, this is, this is going to end bad, badly, I know it, I can feel it. I'm, I'm, any second now, I'm going to pull the ripcord. I'm going to bail. I'm going to jump ship. I know I made a promise. I don't care. I've got to get out of this. 
Do you, do you not think that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, that he was at least tempted to say, God, this is, I, I think I maybe made a bad call. I mean, the darkness, the heaviness, the overwhelming pain, emotionally, physically, that Jesus endured while hanging on the cross, unfathomable, utterly unfathomable. I mean, I think of my, my, my pain. Isn't the worst pain in life emotional pain? Can I just say that? Worst physical pain I've ever experienced broke this leg. Both bones, 90 degree. Pap. Pap. Just like that. Hurt bad. Super bad. You know, my wife has had three children. Is she in the room? Like, I think I've, I've, I've outdone her in pain. No, I'm just, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, no, no. Delete that from the recording, please. But serious, serious pain. That pain doesn't come close to some of the emotional pain that I've had to endure in my life. Guys, it's real. It's real. And the pain that he was experiencing on the cross wasn't like, oh, I can so easily see, you know, how, how, how God is in this and it just, it's all just so obvious how this is going to work out. No, no, that's not the picture that we're given. Jesus, he cries out words like, God, why have you forsaken me? And I think we would be mistaken to assume that what Jesus meant to communicate was that he actually thought that God has forsaken him. But in a moment of extreme emotional anguish, he was experiencing something. It caused him to cry out, God, why have you forsaken me? And yet it was the joy set before him. Guys, if you want to lead anything, you need to learn how to see, how to see past circumstances, how to see through the lens of God's promises. Fourthly, a leader who leads in light of the cross is a leader who is seen, who is seen. This speaks of vulnerability. I recently had a, a meeting, a conversation with a young man, just my little office back there, and uh, he's a leader in the church. His responsibility, he, he's leading different people, and, and that's clear, and he's doing a great job at it. But he asked if we could have a little meeting, so we did, and, and he started to confide in me, and he confessed that he was struggling with some really deep questions about God. And he said, Simon, th- these are like fundamental questions about like who God is so I know I'm meant to be a leader but I just feel like I need to to let you know I think he was expecting me to be like all right well turning your leadership badge on your way out leaders aren't allowed to ask those questions obviously none of us want to just stay stuck in our questions and our doubts and our confusion. It's not, it's not where God wants to leave us in a state of confusion and uncertainty. But there's nothing wrong with being vulnerable, with being honest about, hey, this is where I'm at. These are the questions I'm asking. When Jesus hung on the cross, everything was exposed. 
It wasn't done off in some secret place someplace, which I think theologically it could have been. The lamb could have been sacrificed out in some desert someplace. Maybe one other person, the executioner and the son of God. But instead, it was done in the most public way imaginable. Roman crucifixion. The crucified victims would have been left hanging on a cross on the side of the freeway. On the side of of I-5. It's not V-5, it's I-5. For everyone going by to see. Because I don't want to take too many exegetical liberties. I don't want to make too big of a thing out of it. But I think there is something about the fact that Jesus was crucified in public. It informs our leadership. You know, sometimes people need to see what it looks like for a leader, someone you look up to, to be vulnerable. It gives people permission to be honest with themselves and with others. It's really, really healthy. And then we do help each other. We don't just like leave each other there. We open the scriptures. We reason together. We pray. We cry out. And God helps us. But being vulnerable, that's phenomenal leadership. Number five. Let me see. We did follows, follows through, sees, is seen. A leader builds. A leader who leads in light of the cross is a leader who builds. It's a leader who's not just critiquing others, but who's rolling up their sleeves and getting to work on the house. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against us. This is what he said to his disciples. Now they probably were wondering to themselves, like, okay, awesome, so you're gonna build your church. How exactly? How's this gonna go down? If you read a couple verses along, it says in verse 21 of Matthew 16, that from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things, be killed, and on the third day, raised back to life. Fundamentally, how does God build his house? How does Jesus, how did Jesus plan on building his church? By going to the cross. This is the cornerstone. Peter says, this is the rock of offense. This is what causes us to, uh, to stumble in our pride. The fact that the kingdom of God is not built on my skills, my abilities, your influence, your charisma, your family line. No, it starts by God becoming a man and dying for my sins and yours and the world on a cross. That's the cornerstone of God's house. And then each one of us who turn to Jesus become what the scriptures call living stones. You know what living stones are? I had uh, an Israeli explain this to me. I was in Israel. And uh, so dead stones are the stones that are just laying out in the field, just kind of just on their own, just whatever, random rock out, out in the dirt someplace. A living stone is when a stone is picked up and put in its place in a wall, in a house, in a structure, and it becomes living. We become living stones, the very stones in which Jesus is using to build his church. As a leader, 
it's very easy to get caught up in everything that's being done wrong. It's being said wrong, that's being understood wrong. And we'll get to, we'll get to some of that in just a second. Because we can't just sort of like ignore heresy and, and, and people um, using and abusing other people. But a leader looks around and says, right, this place needs some work. There's a lot of dead stones lying around here. How can I begin to use the gifts that God has given me to see, this, to see Jesus build this house? We pick up a shovel, we get to work. I had a, a leader, friend of mine, a pastor um, down in Southern California one time. This was, I, re, I, re, I alluded to a time in my life when I had been let down by a leader. Probably the most spectacular instance of a leader failing me. Uh, he committed adultery, he lied about it, he used people. It was just the worst. Just like, you know, one of these terrible sort of church tragedies. And uh, so it all went down, it all, it all came out in the open, he was exposed, and everything just like fell apart. Okay, the, the feces interfaced with the fan, is what happened. <laughs> and some people were leaving, some people were like just freaking out, and it was just chaos. People were hurt, and I was hurt. And this pastor friend of mine, a bit older than me, I remember he pulled me aside one morning, and he said, Simon, I just, I want to share, I want to share something with you. He said, I, I've, I've experienced something like this in my own life. I've kind of been there, done that. And I learned something, that there's three types of people uh, that, that sort of emerge in a situation like this. Um, now, he didn't use the word feces. He used the other word. Uh, but at the time, I was like, wow, you're such a cool pastor. Like, um, whatever. And uh, he said, there's three kinds of people. He said, there's those who, who look around, they see the mess, and they start to pick it up like monkeys at the zoo and just kind of fling it around. And they're just kind of like, oh, let's just, let's just see what we can do with this mess. There's those who just stand back and look at the mess and think to themselves, or perhaps even say out loud, well, who's going to clean this mess up? Like, who's going to fix this? And there's the third type of person. It's, it's the leader who says, right, where do you keep the shovels? Let's clean this mess up. This is the house of God. Let's, uh, let's build this thing back up. The scriptures say that, the, that we're to build each other up. In fact, the scriptures say that the family of God is to build itself up in love. The house, the, the, the structure of living stones begins to come to life in such a way that we build ourselves up in the spirit by the power of God. And so we build. The leader who leads in light of the cross is also the leader who battles. You guys get what I'm doing? F, F, S, S, B, B. Battles. What's that? Thank you. A leader who leads in light of the cross is a leader who takes a stand. Okay, what do we do when we look around and we see things going wrong? Now, this isn't just like church business. I'm not just talking about church drama here. Like in the world, in our nation, in our city, in our families, in our little personal spheres, our lives. What do we do when we see injustice? What do we do when truth is being twisted? Especially when it's being twisted to 
to abuse others for personal agendas? What do we do when we see the word of God, which is meant to liberate people, which is meant to be a gospel of freedom, of deliverance, being used to suppress people and manipulate people? What do we do when we look around and we see someone we care about being hurt because of lies? Have you ever, have you ever had that uncomfortable sensation of being lied to by Satan? Scriptures say that Satan is the father of lies. And he's, he's um, shockingly manipulative. We see Satan in just, just a few instances throughout the Gospels actually coming to Jesus and using Old Testament scripture, using the Bible, twisting the words of God to manipulate and incite fear in Jesus. He wants more than anything else to stop him from following through to the cross. And so he lies, he lies, he lies, he lies. This is what he does, this is his, his move. What do you do when you're walking with a brother or sister in Christ and it seems like they're beginning to live and act and think in a way that they're like listening and starting to believe lies about themselves, about people around him, that, that, them that care for them? We battle, we take our stand, we push back, we resist the devil in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. Only the weapons of our warfare, to use the the way the Bible puts it, they're not fleshly, they're not carnal. We don't pick up guns and swords. We don't start beating each other over the head with our, our Bibles. It says the weapons of our warfare are spiritual. Their love, their joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., etc. There's nine of them. The fruits of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God in us that empowers us to experience the anger that God Himself feels when His love is being violated, when His children are being abused. There's a sense of righteous anger that rises up within the child of God that says, no, no, that's a lie. That's not who you are. In Jesus Christ, you're beautiful. You're accepted. You're you're significant. You count. You belong. You're not weird. You're You're not the one that just stands out that no one else could possibly ever understand or relate to. Well, you are, but we all are. That's the beauty of it. That's the lie. We're all a bit messed up. Welcome to the family of God. It's where grace does its work. It's where God is proven faithful. And so we take our stand. We pray for each other. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. Oh gosh, this is one of my favorite verses. It says, and you speaking of us, the children of God, who were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, 
having forgiven us all our trespasses, our sins, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And not like one of those little hammers that you have in your kitchen junk drawer, like a proper carpenter's hammer, right? Nailed it permanently to the cross. It says that he disarmed, in so doing, he disarmed the demonic rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him on the cross. When Jesus was being lifted up on the cross, when he was suffering and about to breathe his last, it wasn't, it wasn't a cry of defeat that Jesus let out. It was a battle cry, a cry of victory. And that victory was proven true three days later when he came back to life. Jesus' death was his victory over death itself. It's important for us to remember that, yeah, first and foremost, we're sons and daughters. We've been adopted into the family of God because of what Jesus did for us. But once we're in the family, it's a bit like, look, you don't mess with my brother or sister. When the enemy, I'm talking about the liar, Satan, begins to try to pick off, isolate, lie to, and marginalize the family of God, we go to prayer. We pick up spiritual weapons and we begin to stand. We fight for each other. We battle. Last one. A leader who leads in light of the cross is a leader who believes. Luke 23. This is the last one, guys. 23:44. It was now about the sixth hour. That's noon. And there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. While the sun's light failed... And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. In Jesus' darkest moment, at the very pinnacle, the consummation of his leadership, at his point of death on the cross, Jesus cried out, Father, all of this I'm committing into your hands. It really came down to the relationship between God the Son and God the Father. A son who wholly trusted, who believed in his Father. You know what leadership really boils down to in, in the church, in the family of God? It's people who have the courage, have the nerve, the grace to believe in God. What am, I, what am I doing here? Who am I to presume I've got anything to offer you guys? We got military guys in here, we got cops in here, we got teachers in here, we've got business owners in here. You guys, I could point virtually everyone that I know in this room and tell you why you're more qualified to talk about leadership than I am. 
except that I believe that God's power is made perfect in weakness. I believe that when Jesus died, he died to offer new life to anyone who turned from their sin and believe in him. I believe that ultimately the world is transformed not because of one particular talented, popular celebrity, politician, charismatic person. And I'm not against any of those things per se. But ultimately the solution that we're all looking for, the leader that we all need, it's not the amazing human, not the amazing pastor. It's the one who would humbly submit themselves and believe in our creator, our heavenly father. The one who sustains the entire universe by the word of his power. This is Jesus. When he breathed his last on the cross, he committed everything into his father's hands because he trusted his father. If you want to be a leader... Has learned how to how to trust God, because He is the only one who is ultimately qualified to lead us. The quality of our life is determined by the quality of its leadership. There is no better leader than God. Can we stand together? <clears throat> 